Welcome to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is a world-renowned leadership expert. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he has served as the president of two universities. The Leader's Notebook is brought to you by Global Servants. For more information about Global Servants, please visit our website, globalservants.org. Here is your host, Dr. Mark Rutland. A man I was in consultation with told me, Dr. Rutland, I really want a turnaround here. I'm willing to do whatever it takes, but I have no idea what to do. I think that pretty well sums it up. The issue is not the theory of being in favor of turnaround leadership. Everybody's in favor of turning it around if it's crashing. The issue is, what do I actually do and what do I do first? Hello, I'm Mark Rutland. Welcome to The Leader's Notebook. I'm in a series based on my New York Times bestseller relaunch, Uh, the subtitle of which is How to Stage an Organizational Comeback. I hope that you'll get all of these episodes. We archive them. If you haven't heard the other three, uh, and perhaps you miss one as we go along, then I do so hope that you will get them, listen to them, and I hope that you'll get the book. At the end of this podcast, someone is going to come on and tell you how to get a steep discount on relaunch, and I want you to have it. And I believe that you may want more than one because I'm confident that the moment you read it, when you really dive into it, you're going to think of more than one person that you say they really ought to read this book. Now, in this episode, I want to talk about how do we start a turnaround? How do we deal with it? It's fine to say this organization needs to speed up or turn right or turn left or it has fallen into a dormant stage and we just need to crank it up again. That's all well and good. But what do we do first? Let me just begin with talking about a couple of issues where institutional reality was necessary. Before Interstate 75 was built, drivers traveling to Florida down from the Midwest had to travel right through the middle of a small town called Corbin, Kentucky, on Federal Highway 25, not an interstate, but Federal Highway 25. Every day, hundreds of them stopped at Harlan Sanders Cafe for a bite of uh, Colonel Harlan Sanders fried chicken. But when the interstate was complete, Highway 25 went quiet. It bypassed Corbin, Kentucky, and Sanders Cafe was left high and dry. Colonel Sanders was at a crossroads. He could sit there and hope for the best, ride out his near-empty restaurant and, and hope it would turn around, or he could ride it all the way down, or he could pursue another vision for his restaurant. Colonel Sanders' fortune grew out of that disaster of being bypassed by I-75. He didn't quit, and he didn't just sit there until it ran into bankruptcy. He hit the road. He started recruiting Kentucky Fried Chicken franchisees across the United States. It all began, Colonel Sanders' uh, success began with a clear-eyed look at the real situation. What had changed, what had gone wrong, and where was he, not theoretically, not with some kind of positive narrative spin, but where was he really? The willingness to face reality is a common part of success among turnaround leaders, the importance of institutional reality, not the narrative that we've created, not our faith confession, 
Where are we really? In all of the systems, a systems analysis, what is working? What is not working? What is broken? What if I fixed it would make a difference? And what if I ignore it doesn't make any difference one way or the other? There's an old joke about a Southerner in a bar who was uh, going on and on about the superiority of the Confederate Army. The South had better generals, he said, more fighting spirit, and they were better shots than the Northern soldiers. He finally concluded the South could have beaten the North with cornstalks. A nearby patron, growing impatient with this uh, talkative Southerner, asked, then why didn't the South win the Civil War? And the Southerner answered with a shrug, because the North wouldn't use cornstalks. As this joke suggests, the Confederacy's greatest problem in the Civil War, apart from the fact they had an indefensible moral issue, was that their tragic refusal to face reality. The South rushed into a war against vastly superior numbers, manufacturing, finances, governance. There was absolutely no way the Confederacy was doomed, and we are glad it was doomed, but the Confederacy was doomed from the beginning. True, the Confederacy had great generals. This, uh, the Southern uh, spirit was filled with fight. They had home field advantage, if you can call it that. They also, their home field was also a battleground. In their minds, at least, they had a cause to believe in, although misguided, to be sure. But none of that changed the fact that the North had well over twice the population and nine times the manufacturing capacity. No amount of generalship or fighting spirit was going to outweigh that kind of advantage in manpower, horsepower, steel, iron, ammunition, weaponry. It just wasn't going to happen. The leaders of the Confederacy were not alone. In dysfunctional organizations, very few leaders are willing to face the reality of their situation. Sometimes it stems from just wrongful thinking, what I call in business magical thinking, or it can be in the Christian world, in the church world, bad theology. Companies say they're on the cutting edge, maybe even believe they're on the cutting edge when they haven't changed anything in years, or in any case, they haven't changed nearly as much as everybody else around them has changed. They don't take time to really drill down into the facts. Churches that claim they're healthy internally don't look at the fact that they have declining attendance, declining revenue, and declining morale. The highway has bypassed them, and they won't face it. The first step in leading a turnaround in an organization is simply to take a good, long look at the stark realities. Then, to communicate those realities to everyone involved in a way that avoids panic. Can't just uh, set your hair on fire and hope that everybody will be inspired. In many ways, faith-based organizations are the worst about refusing to face reality. To face such earthbound realities as financial distress... And to take it seriously is sometimes construed as a lack of faith. Of the three great turnarounds in which I took part, and I mentioned those in the last episode, Calvary Church took on a $21 million debt 
in a large part because of this magical thinking or bad theology. The leaders there whom I followed believed that they were trusting God when they took on this huge, impossible debt while their attendance and their revenue was dwindling annually. For nine straight years, average attendance went down and revenue decreased, and in the midst of that, they somehow convinced a bank to loan them $21 million. Common sense in their way of thinking would have been a kind of spiritual compromise, a lack of faith, a bad confession, if you will. They may have thought they were submitting their decision-making process to God. In fact, they were surrendering their decision-making power to the bank. In one of my first meetings with the Calvary congregation, not long after I had met with the bankers, I conducted an exercise in transparency. At a church-wide meeting to which I summoned as many people as possible, I didn't want to do something um, behind a curtain somewhere, I announced for weeks the date of this meeting, and I said, if you're a leader, or if you're married to a leader, or if you've ever heard of a leader, or if leadership means anything to you, I wanted more people there, not fewer. At this meeting, I turned down the lights in the auditorium and put the church's financial report up on an overhead projector. As I went through this PowerPoint slide, PowerPoint after PowerPoint, slide after slide, the situation became obvious, but I discussed them, diagnosed each slide in a calm voice until out of the darkness, someone yelled, my God, we're bankrupt. Let me tell you, that sucked the oxygen out of the room. Disruptive? Well, yes, it was, but at the same time, it was a big help. The whole point of that meeting was to do two things. The first was actually to alarm the people of Calvary who had been told week after week after week, we're in great financial shape. Before the offering every Sunday, someone would make this positive confession. We're walking in the blessings of Abraham. God is with us, all that. But the problem was that wasn't accurate. Now, let's just talk about the issue of a bad confession for a moment. When uh, Moses sent the spies into the Holy Land, into what was to become Israel, they came back, and the larger group of the spies said, we can't possibly go in there. There are giants, and we look like grasshoppers in their eyes. Only Joshua and Caleb gave a report that was based on faith. So sometimes people think that because the spies said there were giants, it was a report without faith. That is not true. It was not a bad report because they said there were giants. That was reality. Joshua and Caleb also said there were giants. It was a bad report because they projected their own lack of faith into the situation and projected onto the giants their sense of the inevitable defeat. We look like grasshoppers in their eyes. Joshua and Caleb didn't deny there were giants. They said there are giants. So reality is not the opposite of faith. There are giants, but with God's help, we're well able to overcome them. So in other words, after sleeping through years of financial crisis, because someone kept saying that an honest financial report is bad faith, I had to suddenly wake the congregation up that we were in a serious and perhaps fatal financial crisis. Once I managed to get things calmed down after the man screamed bankruptcy, that's fire in a crowded theater, let me tell you. I was able to calm them down enough to continue the meeting. 
I said, okay, I'm glad you're awake now. But now isn't the time to panic. That time might have been months ago, even years ago. But now instead of panicking, we need to calm ourselves, recapture our faith, and turn this thing around based on reality. Why are leaders so reluctant to share distressing news with the people they lead? I've already mentioned something I call bad theology that often keeps leaders from addressing facts. There is also the reality that people prefer the happy illusion. However short-lived, they just want the positive narrative that things aren't really that bad. There are people that go to an oncologist and do not want to know the truth. They don't want that doctor to look across the table and say, I'm sorry, this is stage four cancer. There is always the fear of what people will say or think or do when they find out what the reality is. This is not always an unfounded fear, by the way. People do sometimes freak out, overreact. They, they shoot the messenger and otherwise make life unpleasant for the bearers of good news, even if, or maybe especially if, that's the leader. But that unpleasantness is nothing compared to the unpleasantness that ensues when you've been telling people everything is okay and you run the ship on the rocks. After years of denial and concealment, the simple fact of showing these shocking financials to the congregation turned out to be, it was high risk, but it turned out to be one of the most important things I did to work on Calvary's turnaround. For one thing, people now knew what was at stake. Perhaps more importantly, the vague sense that something big was wrong, nagging at the back of their minds, was replaced by a concrete sense of just how bad things really were. Reality is actually more easily born than the vague sense that there is some huge problem behind the clouds that's going to swallow me up, and I don't even know what it is. Yes, it was a huge financial mountain to climb, but it was finite. Now we knew what it was. Now we knew the exact numbers. It was something we could start chipping away at. It gave us a reason to roll up our sleeves and start working together instead of just chewing our fingernails and waiting for this unknown shoe to drop. The revelation at that congregational meeting was followed by incremental and very tangible actions. What do you do to start a turnaround? You take small bites and begin to chew. We were 120 days behind on our vendors the day I walked on the campus at Calvary Church. I had to go to Florida Power with my hat in my hand. It was humiliating and appealed to them to leave the lights on till we get current. I told them, if you'll wait, we'll pay everything we owe. We'll bring it current, to use a pun, and we will never, ever again get behind. And they worked with me. We were able to do that, and we never, ever got behind on a single bill. But that wasn't the only bill we were behind on. I called a board meeting every Monday night for the first year I was at Calvary. Can you imagine how strenuous that is for me, the pastor, and for all the members of the board? Why did we do that? Because as we reviewed the previous day's offering, we decided together how to handle the bills that had backed up. And we met our financial obligations week by week until we caught up with all the overdue bills and began to get ahead. 
that was amazing to me, and it inspired my faith, how quickly the congregation stepped up once it understood the reality of the situation. The quote-unquote positive confession they were getting actually put a tourniquet on the giving. One of the scariest things we uncovered was the fact that $350,000 of designated mission funds were on the books, but the money wasn't there. Realizing their urgency, we called upon a small inner group of people to give. Because a new confidence was starting to permeate the congregation, we were able to put that $350,000 back almost immediately. Within the first six months, we saw $600,000 cash turnaround. Chipping away at these money problems, and they were huge, was not the solution to all of Calvary's dysfunction. It was emotionally and, and spiritually and relationally bankrupt as well as financially bankrupt. Nevertheless, being aware of the magnitude of the financial problem had a curiously invigorating effect on the people. Instead of discouraging them, it encouraged them to start giving and working together. The immediate, almost immediate financial turnaround at Calvary amazed me. I was terrified about that meeting of institutional reality to start putting up on the screen slides that were the exact opposite of everything that they had been told for nearly a decade. I was frightened that they would freak out, get angry, shoot the messenger, but I knew, and it turned out I was right, that reality is better than deception. Transparency, even if it's awkward, difficult, and embarrassing, is better than a fake and positive faith. I should also point out that being aware of institutional realities means more than revealing an organization's weaknesses. It's a matter of seeing and understanding the organization's strengths and assets as well. I'm a big believer in top-line management. That is to say, all things being equal, I would rather improve the balance sheet by growing top-line assets than by cutting bottom-line expenses. Sometimes bottom-line expenses have to be cut. I'm aware of that. But what I'd rather do is increase top-line revenue. And getting more out of existing assets is usually a much more efficient means of improving the top line than acquiring or creating new assets. At one point, I actually considered titling this uh, teaching today, First You Need a Billionaire. The turnaround at ORU, for example, would not possibly, I, I think not possibly, though God certainly has other means, but I would say it's, it, it is dubious that it would have happened, the great turnaround, without the munificent, generous intervention of David Green. We will never know, of course, from what other direction God might considerably have brought the rescue, but he did bring it through David Green, with such a miraculous answer that any other seems unlikely. It would be easy for ORU and for me when I was there to say, well, the answer to a financial challenge is a billionaire, and we got one and you don't have one, and nani nani boo boo. But that's arrogant and presumptuous. It, it would likewise be easy for others without a billionaire popping out of the woodwork to fall into paralyzed despair and say, we need a billionaire, we don't have one, we'll never amount to anything. The point, however, is not really some miraculous deus ex machina like David Green. As grateful as, as we were there, and as I still remain, 
for David and for his family, anyone who receives that kind of amazing generosity must be grateful, but you cannot wait for that. The point is to take advantage of whatever resources you do have at hand and start the turn. You can't turn the Queen Mary on a dime, but you can begin to inch the steering wheel to starboard. Calvary's asset was also its problem. The facility was fabulous. Visitors came just to see it. We had a 5,000-seat auditorium right on I-4 between Daytona Beach and, and Disney World. The facility also caused the debt and much of the anger. Many of the people that I was asking to pay for the building were resentful that it was there. They were opposed to it, didn't want it, felt it was overbuilt and extravagant. So every time they drive up in the parking lot, they think, oh, there's that building. And then I walk in the pulpit and say, hey, please help me pay this building off. So the debt and the anger were easy to see and to feel. That didn't take some huge revelation. Less apparent were the benefits. So let me just point some. You have this massive building that you didn't build and you don't want the debt on it. But on the other hand, I did have the building. I didn't have to build anything the entire time I was at Calvary. Neither did I have any lid on the possibility of growth. Room. I had plenty of room. A 5,000-seat auditorium with almost no bodies in it is a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. A neglected asset is like found gold. Let me give you one other example. Looking through the old records at Calvary, I also noticed that the church had hours and hours and hours of prepaid airtime, hundreds of thousands of dollars of prepaid airtime with a local television station. The previous pastor had decided that he wasn't suited for television, or someone decided it. So those credits, those hundreds of thousands of dollars of prepaid airtime were just sitting there unused. I called the station and said I was ready to start broadcasting Calvary services. Through a series of events that I don't want to deal with on the air, we ended up airing four times a week without having to pay a cent in cash. In subsequent years, Calvary went through a period of tremendous growth. Our research showed that 33% of the people who joined Calvary during that period of time were first exposed to Calvary through those television broadcasts. In other words, they window shopped on television before they ever joined us in a Sunday morning service. This was all a result of paying careful attention to the whole reality, not just the negative reality of our institution. Institutional reality can be bad and can be sobering. There may also be hidden assets. If I hadn't gone over those books with a fine-tooth comb, I wouldn't have found that prepaid airtime, and it made a huge difference. In the systems analysis phase of a turnaround, look for what you do have. Anyone can see the challenges. A visionary leader must also see the opportunities and creative ways to leverage resources. I believe that institutional reality is one of the most strenuous, demanding, and necessary first steps of a turnaround. That man with whom I was consulting, who said, I, I want to turn around, I believe in turnarounds, and I want to do it, I just don't know what to do. The first thing I said to him is, we have to understand this church. What you have, what you don't have, what the problems are, what the limits are. We have to understand this church. What is really 
working here? What is not? What do we need to change? Where do we establish our priorities? Where should we invest limited resources? I told him, quit telling me what you don't have. Let's see what you do have. Imagine this. The disciples came to Jesus and said, we have thousands and thousands of people out here in the wilderness listening to you preach, and it's, it's nearly sundown. Send them into town in order to get some food for supper. Listen to what Jesus said. You feed them. That seems like an impossible vision. But then he does resource management. He says, quit telling me what we don't have. What do we have? And the disciples said, just these few fish and these loaves of bread. Jesus said, we'll start with that. You start with what you do have. You can't live moaning and groaning over what you don't have or what's broken and you don't have the money to fix it. What do you have? And then Jesus managed for the miracle. He said, have the people sit down in groups of 50. He realized that if he didn't have an organizational basis for the next phase of the turnaround, that somebody was likely to just be trampled. They couldn't just start throwing bread and fish out into the crowd. He did a resource allocation. He did people management, managing the human capital. He did a, a systems analysis. He knew that he had a system, the disciples, his apostles, that were subordinate to him, loyal, faithful, obedient. And he knew that he had these limited financial resources, a few loaves and a few fish. To start a turnaround, the first thing you have to know, where are we really? What is hurting? What is broken here, really? What do we have that we can begin the turnaround with, really? That's where it starts. God bless you, my friend. This is Mark Rutland, and this has been The Leader's Notebook. To order a copy of Relaunch, please visit the store at drmarkrutland.com. Enter promo code RELAUNCH to receive $7 off of each book. To order by the case, call us toll-free at 888-823-8772. Thank you for listening to The Leader's Notebook.